ready, are we ready to do this formally? I All right. Yeah. So intro music. Oh yeah. episode of what is this called again cj i think this is the unmeasured podcast the unmeasured podcast what is the subtitle dave conversations without bar lines boom in all seriousness welcome to the unmeasured podcast we're here for our inaugural episode hope you enjoy it hope you subscribe when there's a place to subscribe to it we'll submit it to itunes eventually but for now we'll put it somewhere and like us on facebook once we have a facebook Hey, let's introduce ourselves. There's three of us for this conversation today. I'm Dave, um, David Chavez. I'm, uh, let's see, I'm an adjunct professor here at Shenandoah University, uh, where we're sitting right now in the Student Center. And I'm a church musician, I'm a composer, composer by trade, but I make more money as a musician as I think a lot yeah. of people do and all that. Well, I shouldn't say a lot of people do. I don't, really make, I don't make a lot of, I don't make a lot of, my point is I don't make a lot of money as a composer, specifically. <laughs> I make more money being a piano player. Yeah. So that's me. And you are. And I am CJ Eller. I am a first year doctoral student here at Shenandoah University, but I also did my master's here as well. And I play classical guitar. I'm a performance major. And I love to do podcasts and organize events and... Long walks on the beach. Long walks on the beach and sometimes a pina colada here and there. A virgin mm. pina colada, but... Getting caught in the rain. Something like that. Mm. Yeah, exactly. But enough about me. We have a special <laughs> guest today. Special guest! <laughs> That's me. So I'm Alex Flanagan. Uh, thank you guys so much for having me. Yeah. Thanks for being our inaugural podcast guest guinea pig. Yeah, absolutely. It's awesome. one of my favorite jobs. Yeah. So. Inaugural <laughs> podcast guest guinea pig. Yeah, absolutely. You've done that before. That's going on my resume. <laughs> right. As of today. Good, please. Whenever this airs, actually. At least on your CV. Which absolutely. Which is, you know, comprehensive. All right. And who are you? Who are you? Who are any of us, really, Ooh. here at the Unmeasured mm. Podcast? Mm. Lives without bar lines. I, uh, I am a citizen of the world. Are. Now, I am uh, I'm a lot of things. I am a graduate of Shenandoah University. I got my bachelor's here in several things. Mm-hmm. I was mostly a musician. I started as a jazz saxophone major, and then I sort of changed to a self-designed degree plan, studied some English, some history, some theater, all over the map. I work at a coffee shop now, which is what I think most people with that sort of a degree do. <laughs> But There's no shame in that, Alex. None, yeah. whatsoever. I make Wells a lot of people Fargo very happy. Like that, yeah. <laughs> Wells Fargo would be proud of me for becoming a barista. Wells Fargo is a super <laughs> former musician. Started at the bottom. Decided to turn around her life and make something of it. Serving coffee to bankers. <laughs> Excellent. All right, we're glad to have you. So the concept of this podcast came out of... Uh, just conversations that CJ and I had with each other and then with a lot of different people. CJ, do you want to say a little bit about that? Sure. I mean, I think the cool thing about podcasts for me is is listening to a whole different kind of music, which is that of conversation. Mm. You know, sometimes when I say I'm a musician, I'm kind of like, but aren't we all musicians in some degree? Because we all, I mean, conversation yeah. in the sense is that, I don't know. Well, I mean, music what is between, music? Right, mm. right. No, that's true, mm. which, which, goes, which goes into what we're talking about today. But I think for me, just having conversations that matter and that we need 
as musicians, as human beings, as artists, I think is crucial. And that's what's so great about podcasts is that you can listen to all these different kind of conversations that maybe you would overhear that you would have with friends, but didn't really necessarily get the chance to be there on that day or experience it at that moment in time. So to be able to hear in, I almost Hmm. take it as if you're eavesdropping almost on conversations so that's 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 the part that i like about it musicianly voyeurism yeah Yeah. it's like a conversation you can eavesdrop on and then talk to your friends about without social repercussions exactly (laughs) no i think that's it so this is like a gossip cast essentially (laughs) musical gossip no i'm just kidding i'm just we could just say we're listening yeah no i i I, I, i'm I'm right there with you in all seriousness i think that like my my motivation and i think why I got this idea in my head and then we kind of, I think we were thinking a lot of the same things, Mm -hmm. uh, was from, I noticed, especially of late. And by that, I mean, say the last year, maybe, um, a number of people at Shenandoah and other places, but particularly at Shenandoah, I mean, I have to give props to the students of Shenandoah. A lot of my current former students and people that I've gotten to hang out with and know through this university, I feel like the level of dialogue here when it comes to a lot of things is um, really on the upswing and but particularly in terms of people who are really thoughtful and intentional about how do we I don't even want to say become better at what we do how do or how do we just become what we become become what we are so for example like some of um, Alex's Facebook posts lately have spurred really interesting conversations and in part because they were thoughtfully written and often about you know the kind of topics that I feel really strongly about and there's other people Sarah Saul a number of other people who have participated in these conversations on Facebook and in hallways and in in classes even (laughs) imagine that conversations in classes Um, that I found really inspiring because they touched on things I was passionate about so what I was referring to specifically are um, a lot of cross-disciplinary issues. So like, you know, what does it mean not just to be narrowly inside music, but to be a complete artist, creative person, citizen of the world, as Alex said. <laughs> That's right. Actually, CJ and I were talking about this earlier um, while we were waiting for everything to get set up. But he was asking me what I found I took away most from designing my own degree plan and, and following mm. that option. And I think that by far the biggest thing was realizing that trying to learn any sort of art within a structured and narrow pathway robs you of the experience of actually making art. So Mm. getting out there and being a music major, but also taking English classes and history classes and learning from people in the theater division and just sort of experiencing all of these things from a much more organic and holistic perspective really widens your horizons and makes you appreciate a lot more what it is that you're actually learning. That's great. I think think it was this writer and social critic named Neil Postman, he calls this idea the anthropological side of learning and and just you're teaching people how to at once be immersed in a world and then also to step back and to think about that world Mm. and that we need that in order to function and to move things in different directions and to have important conversations and to shift certain things so I like that idea of stepping back like you were saying and being able to observe what you're doing and at the same time being in it at the same at the same time so you're it's weird kind of meta i'm in it but then i'm not in it i think we're at a really interesting point in history right now with social media and the availability to access so many things instantly without needing to have an avenue into them 
So I know, you know, there's a constant criticism of millennials for always being on their phones and missing it. But I think that, you know, since I got a smartphone like two years ago, the amount of times I've been in mid-conversation and not been able to recall something or like, oh, wow, I saw something really interesting the other day and I don't remember what it was. I have access to the information. I can find it. I can bring it up and it can spark a really interesting conversation. But it also has the advantage of giving you the opportunity to sort of look into anything you've been curious about that you haven't necessarily been able to broach for whatever reason there are a lot of people who you know are nervous about breaking into certain circles or various art forms it's like well these people are already so much better at it than me i can't do that Mm -hmm. but you have the advantage nowadays of being able to just jump right in with both or just start a podcast start a podcast (laughs) a blog but seriously it's always kind of like that punk rock ethos of like oh if they can do it i can do it too and it's so wonderful too to even have peers i mean i know a lot of people at shenandoah are doing their own things and through social media you can see that and say Wow, I'm that. That's really great. I want to try to do something similar. I mean, I know even getting inspiration from the theater department. I'll even mm. mention O True podcast mm. and stuff that they're doing at this little thing. I think Sammy Pines made called the Margins Theater and playwrights yeah. and all it's those so things. Cool. Yeah. It's just wonderful to Shout see. Out. Yeah, just it, the whole conservatory program in general, just to see what everybody is doing and then to feed off of that. And it's to, like that archetype yeah. of like the Renaissance man, but it's like the millennial The millennial person, <laughs> person of any gender. Yeah, yeah. the no. Renaissance individual. No. The millennial person, right? It doesn't have the same yeah. way, but it works. No, it's true. And just to be able to have those kind of conversations about all of that. Yeah. Here, to try to That's synthesize what we're doing. It. That's what we're trying to I do. I totally which agree. I think is wonderful. So... Speaking of at least talking about those things and about some kind of renaissance person and person of interest, we do have a general topic today, don't we? That we do, yes. So we decided for our inaugural podcast, actually this was CJ's suggestion, which I think was great, because it's his birthday. Not my birthday. No, no, but this person's (laughs) birthday. And I'm sure... recording, not necessarily (laughs) the time of release. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, good point, good point. (laughs) But so I'm sure that it, since everybody knows that this was recorded on September, what is fifth? <laughs> September fifth, you know that you know this person, you know, on the tip of all of our tongues. Just say it with me, listeners. Was John, John Cage. Cage? Of course, September fifth is John Cage's. I had no idea until you said that. Actually, I think he's 104 so. today. Wow, what would have been? Would have been, yeah. yeah. Or yeah. is. <laughs> However you want to look at it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, John, yeah, John Cage is a great uh, example of one of those figures who crossed disciplinary lines, who didn't play by the rules, uh, but who also immersed himself in something. So, like, CJ, I think actually something that you said about that, um, who was the anthropologist or anthropologist? It's just the Neil Post. Yeah, something that he said about being immersed in something and then also having perspective outside of it. And this goes with uh, what you said, Alex, too, about um, exploring lots of different things, whether you know them well or not, and that being okay as a positive of, you know, your generation or newer generation. I think that that kind of learning works best when you hold. So my, the, the pastor that I work for at the church where I work says, uses this phrase, hold intention sometimes. Mm. So like, uh, I can be let's let's pretend, which I'm not, that I was that I were a uh, tuba major, and you know that I could hold intention doing my etudes and working on technique and working on you know deeply understanding the literature of that instrument, you know, and being a good classical player of that, and looking outside of that and doing these other things with the knowledge that if all I ever did was spend time being great at being a classical tuba player, I'd probably be a pretty incomplete individual. 
And if all I ever did was look at things outside of that, I probably wouldn't be a very good classical tuba player. So, like, I feel like this podcast is an opportunity for us to do that stepping outside of part, which is not to say that there's nothing good about discipline. And I think John Cage, I mean, to me, was somebody who who did that. Like, he could be extremely detailed and disciplined and work very hard and develop an idea. And then he could also, you know, throw paint up on a wall, figuratively. He probably did literally at some point, too, and kind of <laughs> see what sticks. And I think, like, when I was kind of thinking in my mind through pieces of his that I've encountered, like, you know those two things exist right next to each other. And it's so cool. And I think he helped shape that kind of thought so much. So what do you guys think of when you think of John Cage? I think my favorite John Cage story, and I, I apologize to any listeners who aren't already inherently familiar with John Cage, because the story won't be as funny, but <laughs> there's a, um, there's a video on YouTube that is a recording of John Cage's four minutes, 33 seconds, right? But the video was uploaded to YouTube and somebody reported it for copyright audio. Oh, like I heard about Somebody this. didn't own the audio to a performance of 33 seconds. Right. So the audio got removed. So if you go to listen to 4 minutes and 33 seconds, you can't because it's a copyright violation. So you're just sitting there in silence, which is, of course, super awkward. But I think that John Cage would be really, really happy to know that. Oh, I think he would love that. Yeah. Well, and I think, so I'm not, I don't know a lot about the history of 433, but We'll put I'm, a link to 433 in the We will. The we'll put a link to that very yeah, video. We will. We'll link we will. to this in, in the notes for this podcast. But my understanding is that he said um, something about it being about the sound the audience makes or, you know, so like when you get up to, so quick overview of four minutes and 33 seconds, it's a piece where I think there's three movements and all three of them are tacit. So there's no sound. There are scores to it. I think Peters publishes a score to it. It's just like a line of silence, but you don't do anything for exactly four minutes and 33 seconds. Sometimes I think people open and close the piano lid. If there's sure, a, piano. It's a signal movement yeah. change. And it's really fun when you, I remember I was, uh, TA for a music appreciation class in grad school at one point, and the professor performed an excerpt, you know, and this is a class for non-music majors, so many of them hadn't encountered him before through music or art, and as it got to be 30, 40 seconds in, there were a lot of noises and confusion happening, mm -hmm. and, and she talked about that, how, like, you know, this is the music. Yeah, it's not a silent piece. It's not funny, a silent piece. think it's not... So I'm sure the audio that was removed from that recording of 433 was really inherently valuable. I would love to Yeah, right. Like, like that's, but now that's I can. the irony of that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, it's really fascinating because I think, to wax poetic for a minute, I think what that's saying is that the music isn't necessarily the music itself. It's like the people's response to it. So mm -hmm. just like 433 isn't really the silence, it's the people responding to silence. I think that art is not necessarily what you make, but what other people make of it. Sure, and that reminds me of, um, there's this one poet named Kenneth Goldsmith. He's still alive now, but he, he always says... I he wasn't don't there for a while, but now yeah. he is. Oh, no, he's still alive. But no, he says, I have a thinkership, I don't have a readership. Huh. In the sense where he's like, I'd rather have my, my po poetry be thought of as like the concept. Like, okay, what if there was a poem of just traffic reports? And then people, you know, mull over that. So in this sense, John Cage yeah. is so it's like, we're thinking about him, but like, do we necessarily listen to it all the time? Because sometimes I'll admit I don't really listen to John Cage's music, but I'll think about him a whole damn lot, or at least like what he thought and everything. Yeah. But sometimes that's a, oddly enough a more lasting impression is just having that thinker in your mind 
yeah. from time well, to yeah, time. Well, yeah, because like when yeah. you go to a performance of 4 minutes 33 seconds, are you really listening to 4 minutes 33 yeah. seconds, or are you more like experiencing the piece on this like weird, visceral, philosophical level? Yeah. I agree. I think that he's somebody who his historical impact is at least as important, probably more important in some ways, as a thinker than as a music maker. But that's this interesting dilemma, at least in regards to classify him, because at least like the musicians would call him more of a philosopher than an mm. actual composer. And then the philosophers would say he's more of a musician <laughs> yeah. than an actual philosopher. So then you have this weird sort of middle ground where what is he? Mm. And I know he even admits... What like, is a musician? Yeah, exactly. Well, at least Schoenberg said he was just an inventor. He wasn't a composer. He was an inventor <laughs> of genius. He wasn't exactly a musician or anything. He just invented stuff. And I know Cage has spoken about that. At least his father was an inventor. And he says, like, I, th I think of music more you know, as an invention than anything else. Yeah. And it's, it's very fascinating just because you can't really compartmentalize him. As you can yeah. with any musician, the music history is just like you can't really compartmentalize him in any space. But it's yeah. also a really interesting, interesting distinction way. between how we identify ourselves and how other people Ooh. identify us. Yeah. Hmm. Well, like the body of work that you're creating, who has final say over that? Is it about what your intention for the work was or is it about how people respond to it? Yeah. And I can imagine it, it was totally different when he was alive, too. Or it's almost like... Oh, so yeah. then that, that, that's a question that I have in my mind, and maybe you guys can help me answer this. Now, I know none of us are specifically music history scholars. Like, that's not our area of study. But sure. was, was this unprecedented? Like, was he breaking new ground in terms of being unclassifiable in terms of you know breaking boundaries of what is and isn't music what I is actually think about this a lot because what I always find myself coming back to is the question of is anything really unprecedented actually uh, we were having this conversation not too okay. long ago on Facebook we were talking about there's been this viral video going around about the millennial loop and like what that sound is <laughs> and how it's yeah 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 exactly so many, so many. CJ demonstrated for us yeah. <laughs> And people are losing their mind because it's been all over popular right. music since like the early 2000s. But it's actually not a new trend at all. It's it's everywhere in music history. Um, yeah. Because I recognized it much earlier than that as a jazz musician in mm. you know all sorts of things. It's just it's yeah it's so me it's five to three it's if you're arpeggiating chords on a jazz solo yeah. you're gonna play that at some point or another. Yeah. Sure. But it goes back way further than that. In my uh, freshman year, I had a music history assignment where we had to write a Gregorian plane chant. We had to mm. sort of through compose mm. one. And at the time, I was, uh, you know, it was my first year of music school, so I was getting into a whole bunch of new music that I'd never listened to before, and I was just basically going and Spotify following anything any of my <laughs> friends were listening to, because I was just suddenly exposed to everything. I was overstimulated, but I started getting into a lot of, like, folk indie music, and all of these, you know, courses had this millennial whoop sound in it, and I was thinking, this is a lot <laughs> like what we were learning in the playing chant classes that we were having. Uh, so yeah. I wrote a solid like four or five sort of bars, if you want to call them that, in the middle of my chant that were literally just note for note taken from choruses of like fun and Fleet Foxes songs. <laughs> and when I got my grade back on the paper, I was told what an authentic like sound I had created, <laughs> how, you know, true to form this music was. So I think it's really funny, you know, that we think something's new and it's it's not. There's only so many notes and numbers you can put together before it becomes sure. something that's already happened. So do you think then that it's not so much creating something new, but creating a new frame around it or recontextualizing it in a new way? I think recontextualizing is a really good word for it. Because I think you nothing can exist in a vacuum, especially not art. Because, mm -hmm. again, if it comes down to the idea of is it what we're creating or the way people respond to it, I think so much of art is the context in which it happens. And I think so much of art is the way that people respond to it. So you're not mm -hmm. necessarily... 
inventing soul me, soul me, soul me. What you're inventing is a new context for it and a new way in which it's perceived. So what mm-hmm. they've created is they've created a, a reason for this sound to be interpreted as the sound of millennial music, which is why people are responding to it in a new way mm-hmm. than they ever have yeah. before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So now when they're hearing it, they're not hearing 5-3. What they're hearing is millennials. Yeah. <laughs> Power pop. Yeah. yeah. I think you're right. Like we had a similar uh, discussion in couple of my so I teach ear training an ear training class that everybody has to take it's advanced ear training ear training three um so it consists of sight singing dictation um listening intentionally mm-hmm. and actively throughout your musical life is really what I want students to do and and then to be able to you know learn music quickly uh so I, I played that video on the second third class session and I brought up the point uh, I, so I've never been an elementary educator. I've worked with young kids, some in church choirs and stuff. But uh, I was talking with an elementary educator friend of mine, uh, Brianna Gramico, and she is uh, teaching for her first year here at, after graduating from Shenandoah at a school nearby in Virginia. And I asked her, I said, you know, isn't this how elementary educators start introducing, you know, songs, help kids match pitch? to help them kind of sing together on a pitch and then build the pentatonic scale from there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, very young children. And she said, yeah, like that's, you know, that's pretty normal. And I've confirmed this with other educators too, that, you know, they're often taught to do things that go, you know, soul me and soul me. And then maybe add another note to that. And then maybe add the do to that. So I think, it's it's just like that. If you've ever seen that Bobby McFerrin video where he plays was, the audience, yeah, yeah just you were just going to bring that up. That. I think there's something elemental about that. Like I think that that interval is just easier to sing, at least for people that grew up in Western cultures. Though he says he does that all over the world. Bobby McFerrin says in that video. Uh, so maybe it's even deeper in humanity, overtone series, something that just makes that natural to sing, like more so than a half step. To me, that's more natural to sing. You know, even for non musicians than. It just feels right. It's actually Mm. interesting that you bring that up. One of the things that I absolutely love more than anything else in the world is folk music. Yeah. And um, I grew up in West Virginia. And when I was in high school, I started really getting into the idea of Appalachian culture. And so when I got to college, I took a class in Appalachian music and sense of identity. And then I actually helped like co-teach that class for the next two years. So I... Took a lot in from uh, Professor Mike Marr. Shout out to him. Yeah, Mike Cool dude. But what I learned in that class that was so fascinating to me was that the music that we sort of established here in the Appalachian region as our like bluegrass music eventually sounds nearly identical to the same music that evolved without that influence over in like the Himalayan mountains. Mm. There's music that those guys have created over there with string instruments and like these fiddle type things that they created themselves from what they had available to them. And music, though it never interacted with each other, sounds nearly identical. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's wild because you're thinking these two cultures have no reason to interact. They're two relatively isolated cultures in the various right. mountain regions. But because there are certain geographic similarities, that means there are certain lifestyle similarities, which means there are certain similar topics that come up in their music. And the sound of the music itself, from a theoretical standpoint, is also extremely yeah. similar. Yeah, and all I can think of is at least comparing John Cage to um, artist Marcel Duchamp in that way too. Because I mean, mm-hmm. Marcel Duchamp famously put a urinal in an art gallery and called it art. Fountain. Or fountain. I think, I think, yeah. I think that was the name, what he called the piece. I think that's yeah. what it was. Yeah, exactly. And in da- some... Dadaist movement? Is that... Something. Like, I don't think Dada he... That sounds like Dada. Yeah. I don't think he 
wanted it to be called a Dada machine. Yeah. Sure. I don't know. I don't know. Fluxus. I mean, there are a lot of things you can be called thing. for putting yeah. a toilet in an art museum. I, I think, think that's yeah. among the least offensive. Yeah. yeah. But, I mean, just that same idea. And I, and I know at least John Cage was very inspired by Marcel Duchamp, but yeah. at least thinking about 433 and then Fountain, mm-hmm. like they exist almost in the same sphere of conceptual art in the, in the sense that we're asking what is music, what is fine art. But in a way, they both come to it at different angles or maybe different perspectives. Maybe we think of John Cage in a more Zen Buddhist sort of sense. Mm-hmm. And then we think of Marcel Duchamp, maybe in the Dada way of just, yeah. like, just ridiculousness or, or in just something completely different, but some kind of iteration of that. But we get the same sort of thought process. It's almost the yeah. same thought process. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Like the Himalayans and you know, Appala- Appalachian music. It's, it's, I don't even know if it's just a thought process but then, like you arrive at, at similar conclusions. Maybe it's maybe just it. maybe there's a cultural zeitgeist that's connecting them all together. <laughs> Collective <laughs> consciousness. Ooh. <laughs> oh my gosh! We when you go talking. to edit this, can you like put the uh, shoot? What is that right Twilight there? Zone. The Twilight Zone music right there. Oh yeah, I was trying to do the, the actually I was trying to do the intro to Stranger Things, which we were yeah. talking about right beforehand. And now yeah. Alex is gonna save it to binge watch all at once. Yeah. I've set aside time on my calendar. It's good. I have to find a it's day good. that I don't have work and just sit down and watch the whole thing. I'm kind of like a sci-fi nut, so I'm really excited. I just haven't watched it yet. Oh, you're going to love it. Uh, a couple just context things for our listeners. So Alex mentioned uh, Appalachia. So we're sitting at this moment on the campus of Shenandoah University, which is in Winchester, Virginia, which is in kind of the northwest corner of Virginia, I guess you could say, almost West Virginia. Mm-hmm. And uh, you don't have to go far to be in like very rural Appalachia. Uh, and it's it's neat. I think that's one of the neat things about living here, actually, is that, you know, you don't have to go far to be in very urban, you know, center of political power and, you know, a lot of culture in D.C., but you also don't have to go far to be in, you know, a center of rural culture and uh, maybe not political power. <laughs> and then just a, just a little couple thumbnail things on John Cage. Uh, so he was born in 1912, died in 1992. Uh the Grove Music Online article about him calls him American, an American composer, but I think that um, he was so much broader than that. Um, you know, maybe we should talk a little bit about his uh, his long association with uh, you know other types of art, but particularly Merce Cunningham, the the dancer. Um, when we were talking, when one of you asked the "What is the musician?" question earlier, I was reminded of so we so one of our policies here. At the uh, at our new podcast <laughs> is that we are not going to prepare for these, so these are not like researched, fact checked. These are just our more off the cuff thoughts. But we did read like one little article about John Cage, and there was something that stuck out to me. It was it was about him, and particularly how dance was important in his creative output and his collaboration with Merce Cunningham. How they, you know, revolutionized these art forms together. And there was just kind of an aside at one point when Cage was. Uh, uh, starting his association with Cunningham, it mentioned that um, Cage had this all percussion sextet at uh, Cornish and all the musicians, in quotes, in the group, except Cage, were dancers. Uh, and the person, the, the author in the Washington Post says, maybe that was because Cage needed vigorous movers to thump around on the wash tubs, tortoise shells and pipe links that he scrounged for them. Then <laughs> <laughs> the other thing that really stuck out to me that I'll, I'll put with that is uh, it... Um, a quip, a, a quote rather from uh, 
one of the founding members of the Merce Cunningham Dance Company, Remy Charlip, who said, John couldn't keep a beat and couldn't follow the phrasing of the dancing. <laughs> and I think very wisely, the uh, Sarah Kaufman, the person writing this article, says that his out-of-sync piano playing, Cage's out-of-sync piano playing, might have been a liability in the eyes of some dancers, but not for Cunningham, who shared Cage's drive for newness, and so was born one of the great partnerships in dance, as Fred was to Ginger, and uh, so Cage was to Cunningham. So so what do you guys think about that? You know, Cage and Cunningham, and, you know, Cage as a cross-disciplinary figure, and just cross-disciplinary creativity. Sure, I mean, and I think it's to note, too, that they were actually... Lovers and life partners. Right. I think it went yeah. on until Cage's death. I yeah. Can't when they, I guess, when they started. Yeah. And then when they end, so they were. It was a very intimate relationship as well. Yeah, absolutely. Just a professional. Just a professional sense. collaboration. Yeah. yeah. And, and you can say that about a lot of the collaborations in the twentieth century. I mean, some of them at a time when that was less socially acceptable were a little bit more under the radar. Though I don't think John Cage ever tried to hide much about himself. I think he no. was. I think it's always a work of passion. You know, yeah. I think that naturally you're always going to be drawn to people who are sharing that drive for what you're doing because when you are a creative person you want to stay creatively engaged but in terms of the whole dance collaboration I think that one of the best things I ever did for myself as a musician was here at Shenandoah I took two semesters of tap dance mm. which was an interesting thing and kind of a leap of faith because I'd literally never <laughs> taken a dance class before in my entire life and suddenly I'm in like this tap dance class with these people who are going to be on Broadway in two years and it was yeah, a little bit overwhelming. You know, music theater majors, that's some yeah, serious stuff. Was, that's like a it, real professional applied, you're going to get a job degree. It was, yeah. it was hella intense. But I took <laughs> my first semester with Alan Arnett, who was just a wonderful, wonderful man, who taught a lot of very like old school classical tap, like, you know, Fred and Ginger kind of stuff. Yeah. And then my second semester was with Shiloh Martinez, who is one of the greatest women I've ever met. But she was touring internationally in the touring production of Cats when she was, like, 17. Like, she literally wow. got emancipated from her oh parents my. so she could go be an international star at dancing. Oh, my. So that was a little Ooh. bit more frightening. <laughs> but, yeah. But both of them were such incredible learning experiences because it required me to interact with the music that I had been studying in such a different way. Mm -hmm. You know, it's one thing when you're a wind player, you're playing saxophone or a bassoon or whatever you're playing, and it's like you're interacting with the music in a very cerebral sort of way. But when you're doing dance, there's this total physicality because everything yeah. that you're doing is just so much more visceral and physical and it's an extension of everything you're doing. If you're not feeling that music 100%, you're never going to get it. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if that created a necessity for Cage to create different options for himself because I think even the idea of the prepared piano, which maybe Dave can elaborate on, I think was made out of this necessity to have some sort of percussiveness to dance to or to yeah. like for that collaboration so this to piece, work. This yeah. was uh, about 1940, was uh, I think a little bit before Cage's kind of, you know, more uh, intense professional collaboration with Merce Cunningham really got off the ground. It was written for another dancer's, uh, it's called Bacchanal, um, which I assume it was quite a... Uh, gratuitous piece of you know <laughs> hedonism i don't i'm just imagining what that must you know it must have been it must have been i'm sure it was not uh i've never seen it but i'm guessing it wasn't you know like your typical polite dance piece so interesting yeah google yeah. image search anything related to bacchanalia yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you have safe search on it will turn up anything that, but that god of wine <laughs> among not other safe things for work, yeah, not safe. <laughs> It's definitely yeah. Don't Google image that at work. The the uh, so anyway, this piece called Bacchanal, or, or I'm not sure whether that was the title of the dance piece or if that was the title of the music. And you know, it's it. But I think with John Cage, even more so than with a lot of collaborative artists, 
it's always a chicken and the egg question. Like, and it's not, it doesn't even really matter. Those are the kind of questions we worry about a lot now with, you know, copyright and royalties and how, you know, what percentage of what, and I, and I think those are all important things. I'm all for protecting the rights of copyright of content creators, but we have to be careful. I think that we don't let that get in the way of creativity. Um, and this is a discussion I have with my students a lot too, is like, how do we use ear training for that? But anyway, back to, um, back to, uh, Bacchanal. So, there wasn't enough space. I'm not sure whether it was like a flat black box type space or an orchestra pit type space. I've heard orchestra pit, but I'm not sure it's actually orchestra pit. Anyway, wherever the performing space was, there wasn't enough room to have the percussion ensemble that John Cage wanted. But he was really not the kind of guy, not the kind of composer, musician, director. It mentioned that he was like their tour cook too with Merce Cunningham's company. <laughs> like he was a real jack of all trades. He was a very practical artist. In addition to, you know, trying to do completely impractical things, he would sometimes come up with <laughs> crazy solutions to practical problems. So, you know, his his answer to things over and over in life was not, oh, I can't have this exactly the way I want, so it's just not going to happen at all. It's, oh, I can't have this exactly the way I want, so I'm going to charge off in a new direction, make it work, and, you know, make it work, designers. He would, he, Tim Gunn would have loved <laughs> So he basically invented this. I think there were. I think in the original piece there were only about twelve notes prepared because all he could fit was a grand piano in the performing space. So he found that by sticking um, bolts and screws and was it weather stripping? I want to say. Yeah, don't try and, this at home, kids. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and you know I, I've I've seen it done with pencil erasers. Like he could get lots of percussive tones out of a piano. Uh, it's really interesting, actually. So I, uh, when I was in undergrad, before I transferred, I went to Catholic University, and in the contemporary music ensemble one semester, we did a John Cage prepared piano piece. I, I don't remember which piece it was right now. And I know for, for some of them, uh, you know, there's some pretty elaborate performance instructions. I'll, I'll put a link to a, a, a page image of some of the instructions for how to prepare the piano. But, uh, you know, we would be doing things like finding nodes on the strings. So, you know, like you would as a guitar player to play a harmonic or something like that, we would find one of those with an eraser or, you know, a little metal bolt or something like that. And if you put, if you stuck it between the strings, because so for those who aren't used to looking inside a piano, most of the strings, most of the keys in the piano are actually playing two or three strings. The hammer is hitting two or three strings, depending on where it is in the range and the size of the piano. So you can kind of wedge something between a couple of them and it acts like a little mute, but it can also, if it hits one of the harmonic nodes, it's, it's all physics. You can do this you know, with, with light, you can do it with sound. It'll, it'll create some really interesting harmonics and you get these kind of ethereal or harsh or weird tones. Uh, why don't we, just for context, I'll throw in a little bit of audio of the piece um, and then we'll put a link uh, to Spotify and uh, Amazon iTunes to this piece so this is this is a little bit of Bacchanal this is from an album called The American Innovator and it's uh, by Alan Feinberg is the performer pianist works by Adams Ives Cal Nancaro and Cage and this is the uh, where is it Innovator is a really great word. Isn't it? Uh, this is the 13th Inventor cut, composers. Lucky 13. It's interesting, too. If you look at different performances of this piece, they really widely vary. I believe for the performance instructions of this piece, he leaves it really up to the performers exactly how you prepare it. It's like, prepare these notes, but where you place the objects or how you mess with them, you kind of use your ear to figure it out. I think he was more specific in some of the other ones. So, But all that to say, different work, different performances of this work can sound really different depending on 
little changes in how they stick things in the piano and what they do with them. So here's a little bit of uh, Bacchanal. And just, just for fun, why don't we listen to just a tiny bit of one more performance. This is um, John Cage Music for Prepared Piano is the album, and Tim Ovens is the performer. Listening to a, a what is it a shamisen or like one of those? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I like a shamisen sound too. Kind of almost like a penit like a modified pentatonic, like some yeah. kind of far eastern mode or scale. I was actually very surprised how different both of those were. Those were really different sounds. Yeah. Lexington Cage always sort of reminds me how much of the modern movie music tradition we owe to composers like the innovators. Oh yeah, like that, if you will. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, totally. I know. Uh, Two years ago, my junior year at Shenandoah, I was I was playing contrabassoon in the symphony orchestra, which is already an interesting experience in and of itself. But <laughs> sometimes the symphony orchestra at Shenandoah will do these um, these concert performances at uh, a film festival in Middleburg, and mm. so we were playing film score music, and mm. it was it was a learning experience for a lot of these strings players who had never played anything that weird in their life before. But we were playing stuff from like uh, shoot, what's the one movie? A Hitchcock movie? <laughs> no, it wasn't a Hitchcock movie. It's not a guy like it, though. No, uh, Snowpiercer? What's, is that the name of the of movie? Oh, um, fairly recent It's like movie? futuristic. There's like a train. And, yes. And, okay. I haven't seen it yet, but I think yeah. that's the name of the, But yeah. there's some really interesting music from that. It sounds a lot yeah. like what we just listened to. And mm. so uh, a lot of special effects kinds of things going on. You right. know, using the strings in very different ways. And uh, yeah. that whole trick where you take like a, like a cello bow and you bow the end of like a vibraphone vibraphone yeah. beautiful sound oh it's yeah. so cool but that's yeah. the kind of sonic texture i'm getting from this yeah. cage beast and, and henry cowell one of his uh predecessors and i don't know if he was a teacher but certainly an influence on john cage i know cage credited cowell partially mm. with these ideas you know with the idea of doing stuff inside the piano and such you know cowell experimented with like in uh, what is it the banshee i think yeah, and some other pieces. That's really I'll, cool I'll put a link piece, to the yeah. banshee in there as well but with interesting sounds he could get inside the piano. Sure, and I think to tie it back to even what you were talking about with tap dance and everything, mm -hmm. it's interesting how, at least like going back to the inventor side of John Cage, the physicality of actually going in there, manipulating the piano and using physics and all of these different things yeah. as a part of the performance in and of itself, and that each time it would be completely different. Or there's these other things besides the actual performance of the work that are involved i mean I yeah. did one thing i remember that was really cool that cage said he's just like i create music so that 
when I listen to it, it's like the first time hearing it as much as it is maybe like oh, the wow, performer's first time. So this goes with yeah. something that um, a question Alex asked earlier, you know, partially tongue in cheek, but seriously, like, you know, what, what is the music? Is the music what the composer, songwriter, whoever was the original creator or creators of the work intended? And yeah. what, and certainly what makes up the essence of the works, so you might define that differently for something with a really detailed score, say from the late romantic period, and then from something with a really minimal score, no score at all, you know, from jazz tradition or other vernacular sure. music traditions where you just get kind of a bare outline sure. of what you're doing. And, uh, you know, and so then is the music what is perceived right. or what is intended? I think that Cage was one of the people that, and it's interesting that he was doing that at a lot of the time that, you know, jazz and a lot of other more experimental in a popular vein, American art forms were, were growing up, you could say, in our culture. And uh, I think that sometimes we underestimate the amount of cross-pollination, creative cross-pollination happened in there. Like a lot of people who are Beatles fans are not aware of how much Beatles were influenced by, you know, by musical modernism from, you know, a more European classical tradition, say, um, and then from other cultures as well. So, you know, Cage was somebody who introduced the concept of indeterminacy and also aleatoric elements, which are not really exactly the same thing, but they come from the same idea, that of variation in each performance in, in his composition and in the way that he intended the music to be performed. So I would say, you know, Cage's answer to your question would be very much like the music is not, you know, what I intended is for the music to be different every time. What I intended is not this exact detail, that exact detail. Yeah, I'm going to specify some details, but I'm also going to leave large elements of the performance up to the performer. And that's, I think that, you know, that was the kind of thing that made him feel alive as a, as a yeah. creator, is not knowing, is not having control one of my over favorite, some very uh, important things. One of my favorite composers, arrangers, mentors, good friends, Alan Baylock, has yeah. a uh, thing he's fond of saying which is that he doesn't write music. He just writes notes on a page. And the music mm. is what is performed when mm. other people interpret that. And I think Absolutely. That's, that's beautiful. In terms I feel of this, so strongly about that. Yeah, it's exactly. Dots on a page is dots on a page, but that, that does not music make. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah. I think in terms of historical context, something that I'm always struck by is that nothing comes out of nowhere. You know, all music, all art sort of evolves from other things. What sort of sets artists like Cage apart and makes them sound weird to us is the fact that their music isn't coming from the music immediately before it. So a lot of music over time evolves from the music traditions that happened immediately beforehand. And so that seems like a very natural progression to us. But when music comes from somewhere that seems totally new and foreign, mm. it's not. It's just being drawn from maybe totally different elements. So maybe when Cage mm. was writing something, it different sounded culture. new and weird. It was just coming from dance, or it was coming from traditions established in totally different music cultures. Sure. And so, or time or, periods. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Absolutely. So, yeah. What we, so what we're getting here isn't a new sound. It's just a sound drawn from things that we're not currently hearing in our context. No, that's a great point. Alex. So you can't draw a direct evolutionary historical line in a neat way the way you usually would intuitively, but if you look, it's there. It's yeah. just not where you expect it to come right, from. Right, exactly. So I think maybe, like, the moral of this episode of Unmeasured Podcasts hmm. is that, like... <laughs> is this a Mozart opera now? Maybe, can we, maybe. like, can we end up with, like, here's the moral of the story? <laughs> Please sing that at the end of every episode. Dun, 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 Promise dun, dun, me. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> but I think maybe the moral is that it's 
it's just about breaking down these perceived walls we have. And if you open yourself mm-hmm. up to other influences and other experiences and other art forms and other disciplines, like you're totally going to have a good time. Yeah. And that they come from sometimes the same places. I mean, I know these cage was very influenced by Zen Buddhism and just yeah. Buddhism, like Eastern philosophy yeah. in general. And like the idea of uh, interdeterminacy, I think was the, was the book, the, I, the I Ching. The I Ching. Yeah, you yeah. could just like, okay, like toss a couple coins and consult. use that as a yeah. source for, sometimes even like pitches or durations or sure. all sorts of elements of yeah. his music. Yeah, and it's and like the sense of getting rid of, of taste and personal like intention. Trying to create something that's truly objective in a right. form that's entirely subjective. Exactly. And I think that's that's one thing that's mm-hmm. really fascinating in, in that question of, okay, like what is the music? Where it almost seems that Cage is just saying it's just something that happens and I just I'm not even really being a part I'm observing it as much as you all are like to go back to that idea that I am mm. in some sense letting things happen and I'm observing it with you so I'm I'm just an audience it's just like musical chaotic way. neutral yeah <laughs> oh my gosh yeah it's some, mm. some yeah I really want like a chart now of, of, of alignments for composers like musical artists <laughs> we need a 20th century Cages, chaotic neutral <laughs> Now, wait, where does chaotic neutral come from? I know that, isn't that a reference to It's some... an alignment chart. So, like, with, uh, I think it, it originated with before. D&D. So you have, oh, like, right. lawful neutral. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So, is chaotic neutral as well. Sure, I mean, I mean, what's fascinating about that, like, talking about, like, who you come back from, or, like, who you started with isn't exactly what you're going to end up with. I mean, we didn't even talk about these cages mentorship under Schoenberg and how that might like, oh can, be, I, can I read the Schoenberg yeah, quote yeah because that's an interesting <laughs> thing because it's like okay like if he learned under Schoenberg we would expect you know just like you know Berg and Weber and maybe he would catch on but he yeah. was kind of like nah he, he didn't really. he didn't hang with the second Viennese school crowd quite as tightly sure I, I yeah. loved this um so we were we were looking up things that John Cage has said and stay tuned for the end of the episode when we will all share one favorite John Cage quote Something to look forward to. All right. Um, So he says, I certainly had no feeling for harmony. And Schoenberg thought that that would make it impossible for me to write music. He said, quote, you'll come to a wall you won't be able to get through, unquote. So I said, I'll beat my head against that wall. And that's his music. (laughs) I know. (laughs) I I mean, that's, that's partly why I love Cage in some respect. It's almost like a punk rock sort of thing that... Through his limitations, he's able to create something that was not happened before. Well, not happened before, but like we said, like if you're able to kind of take from all these different contexts and still wrap it around what you're doing, you can, in some sense, create a new context that you weren't used yes. to. Know, That's totally like that. deep and totally beautiful, and I love it. But also now I just really want an album of like punk rock does cage. Oh yeah! Oh <laughs> yeah! Four thirty-three sort of thing. Yeah. Have you guys ever I seen? I want like Aerosmiths do four thirty-three. Yeah. Actually, I think that would be great. This is um, something my uh, my composition professor in college, grad school, Paul Barsom at Penn State University, mentioned one time that always stuck in my mind. It's uh, so I'm I'm showing you these guys right now, and I'll put a link to this. A picture of this ad, I guess. I don't know if it's even really an ad from this zine i think it was a punk rock zine from 1977 called sideburns that's just a great sentence yeah it's 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 three guitar chord diagrams for an a chord an e chord and a g chord and they're all you know very easy you know basic to play and it says this is a chord this is another this is a third now form a band 
<laughs> and Paul used said like you know this is like the 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 best encapsulation of the punk rock mindset aesthetic you know like yeah. the anti so it was you know a real reaction against art rock and against mm-hmm. um, you know high intellectual modernism of people like Milton Babbitt or you know Carl Heinz Stockhausen or somebody like that yeah I was like trying to make music that's really like on par with science and all the other intellectual yeah and this is the opposite like no skill training power to the people F that to go back start a band (laughs) to go back to um, that poet named Kenneth Goldsmith he, he has this interesting distinction of like there's smart smart which might right. be like a Milton Babbitt and then there's a smart dumb which is almost like a John Cage where it's like you still <laughs> so he's like the idiot savant <laughs> in some sense where it's like you do something you have a sense of you know like that this is something that's kind of stupid but nobody's doing it yet and you just kind of do it like in a sense of 433 I mean John Cage I think noted how it took him years before he wrote that piece, like it was an idea, and then he mm. just, and then he wrote it. Yeah. Like, there was a lot of deliberation and thought about it, but in some sense, it's like anyone could have wrote it, and any kid could have made Jackson Pollock. Right, know, right, right. <laughs> but they didn't. But they didn't. We like we had like six hundred, eight hundred, like however many you know centuries and of music, and, and nobody made four thirty three. Nobody yeah. made a, a and maybe piece some of those, and actually a lot of those Jackson Pollock paintings are not as random and. You know, I think there's more going on in them than meets the eye at first glance. Sure. As there is in a lot of John Cage's music. That right. You could just say, like, oh, this is noise, or this is right. nonsensical, or this is... He'd probably say, yes, it is. <laughs> yes, yeah, but it's almost like a, you're deliberately doing something that might be, like, a little straightforward or dumb, but it's like you have... It's yeah. like this weird line between, like you said, like... He could have called the piece like, eh, eh, Silence. Yeah, or something like... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but he didn't. No. I mean, and I think that's part of the genius of it, actually, is he doesn't acknowledge what it is. Right. Well, because it's not silence. You're you right. can't call it be silence. Right. It's, it's not silence. silence. Yeah. Yeah. That's the crazy thing. Yeah. I, I this is another thing, actually. Paul Paul Larson uh, used to say we were talking about um, some. We we were talking about music that I enjoyed, but also like you know criticizing some criticizing some popular music and talking about why other popular music, and I'm talking now like pop and rock styles, mm-hmm. might be, you know, more artistically rich or deserve more repeat listening than... Mm-hmm. than, than. So, you know, st- like any group of styles, I'm not saying, you know, pop music is inherently more or less artistic than anything else. There are lots of different pieces. You could say this about, you know, Mozart and his contemporaries too that have a lot of surface stylistic similarities. But when you dig below the surface, there are, you know, things start to emerge that you realize why this one piece might have more staying power than another. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things he said he would teach us is that, you know, good music, good songwriting, but you could apply this to anything. Good songwriting, good lyric writing, let's even be that specific. Um, Cause that's one of the things we were talking about. Doesn't insult the audience's intelligence. Doesn't insult the listener's intelligence. So it doesn't, you know, come out and say, like, you know, do this, you know, love Jesus like this, Mm -hmm. or, um, you know, go up to your girlfriend and put her in your truck and (laughs) give her a soda. It's, you know, like, and and I'm not not to say that literalness is bad, but that, you know, it it doesn't answer all of your questions. And you can even say that in music that doesn't have words, too, right? Like, every, you know, a piece of music that ties everything up in a neat little bow and telegraphs its every next move 
and tells you what to think before thinking it is just as insulting to the listener's intelligence as uh, the TV show that does that, you know, that hits all the points and, you know, is surface well-produced, but doesn't, doesn't make you think, doesn't make, leave you with any questions. I think that's part of the genius of like what we're talking about with John Cage. It's like his music and his thinking and a lot of great music and art, it leaves you with more questions than answers a lot of the time. It doesn't give you easy answers. It doesn't tell you, think this. It might have a point of view. It might have something, you know, political or social or moral that it wants to say, but it doesn't, it doesn't tie everything up in a neat little bow for you. Mm. And do you think maybe like by taking these certain steps, whether it's, you know, doing for like, oh, what if I do a piece that's all rest? Do you think mm. maybe he's like, it's just like, oh, it's like opening Pandora's box just to see what's inside of it. That maybe that's some role of the artist <laughs> just to do that. I mean, there's this Absolutely. great, this is one of my favorite John Cage stories is, Please. is how he took this. He was a part of this performance of a Eric Satie piece, mm-hmm. this wonderful French composer yeah, yeah. piece. It was called Vexations. And oh, it was just yeah. maybe 12 bars or maybe like something like that. And at the bottom, Satie wrote, repeat 800 and let's say 24 times yeah i took a course on minimalism once where Mm -hmm. like on american minimalists specifically like reich uh glass people who were in some of the same kind of concept art movement as cage but that the the professor used that as his like kind of first example of minimalism as we later came to call it anyway go on the great part is like even before that everybody took that as a joke like oh sati you're so funny because i mean he did have a lot of funny things even in his own scores that made fun of yeah. you know, music just like oh he's ascending the staircase look at that you know you know, really <laughs> silly little jokes but i don't think anybody took it seriously and this is like the smart dumb thing working and yeah i think cage was a part of this performance he's like we're gonna perform for we're gonna do those 824 repeats let's do it <laughs> exactly and, they, <laughs> and the performance lasted i think at least 20 hours oh my god in one place that's awesome but i'm assuming that like that's almost just again like or that's awful depending on your perspective i think it's awesome. opening pandora's box (laughs) yeah i don't know what you're gonna get from yeah that's a a really interesting story coming from cage just because i think if we're talking so much about cage as an innovator and as a Mm -hmm. creator making art that is just meant to be received and perceived by the audience in a way that's you know relevant to them then taking this piece and taking the creator's instructions so literally like that's very interesting to me that he would do that because Mm. i feel like a lot of his work comes across the opposite you know Mm -hmm. a lot of his work is just very i like to think of cage's work as like kind of lighthearted and humorous i think a lot Mm -hmm. of people think i'm crazy no i think it has a great amount of whimsy and it's very whimsical music it doesn't take itself too seriously even when it has some serious content in it and even when he makes directions they're not necessarily meant to be followed to the letter they're more of like a here is an inspiration for a piece i think the instructions are and so the fact that he would take these instructions and interpret them quite literally and say no this is what this is what the composer wanted we're playing vexations 824 times but there is a sort of humor to that too because it's like because that was like oh my god they're doing it they're doing it like you know like oh i didn't mean that it's inherently what are you doing oh my gosh and i think it was only like one person or two people like stayed awake yeah 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 well it's like trying to listen to the entirety of i am sitting in a room and you know the first time you try to get through you're like 20 minutes in you're like there's no way sure yeah exactly so i mean there's something funny about just i don't know it's like it's not even so much like personal taste but just like maybe the inventor or like i like the i just love the analogy just opening pandora's box that nobody else wants to open but you're the person that's just like oh well let's see and then it's not necessarily your intention of like i'm trying to ask what is music when is this you're just kind of 
opening it and then I think like Alex said earlier just letting other people think about it and just kind of let the all those bad or good or this actually yeah, translates pretty well happen. into my favorite John Cage quote so is it okay if we go ahead and Let's, yeah, yeah let's, part of things. let's 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 do it. Yeah, go for it. So my personal favorite John Cage quote: "The first question I ask myself when something doesn't seem to be beautiful is why do I think it's not beautiful? And very shortly you discover that there is no reason." Uh, Whoa! I think that's amazing. Whoa! I think that's so cool, and I think that speaks so directly to. And I'm calling myself out more than anybody else here. Whoa. So don't, this is not me, listeners, just like going off on all of you. Mm-hmm. But people who, you know, Alex's think aesthetics. that... <laughs> yeah. People that are like, well, this music that I like is inherently better than the music that you uh, like. Yes. Because I used to be one of those people. Oh, and now I try very hard not to be. I think everybody is that person oh, at some yeah. point in time. If you're not, you're lying yeah. to yourself. <laughs> well, and I think there's nothing... I, I agree, and there's nothing wrong with having opinions about music. Yeah, totally. But... But saying that, like, this music is inherently better because it's smarter or because it's more interesting or because this music took more time to write or because this is classical music and that makes it better than jazz mm, music, etc. Or hip-hop yeah. or, hip yeah, or yeah. anything. There's beauty in all of it. And I think as long as art is speaking to somebody, there's something in it. There's some seed of connection that somebody will <clears throat> will really integrate. You and know, it goes back to exactly it. what you said about how, you know, even if it is in disparate locations or time frames or genres, there is the same spirit. There's always or, some connection, yeah. yeah. Mm. that's still the, the spirit same. of art flows continuously no I like that and I think that goes back to just even just the idea of sound in general you know where you kind of say like oh that I, there's another I'll just, I'll just it's not my quote but it's a great story <laughs> of um Cage and Morton Feldman having this conversation and they actually maybe we can link to this there's this great okay. four hour we're just gonna have like an entire Dropbox at the end it's of the show might as well yeah, no, but there's this yeah. great it's not on this but or maybe it is but there's this great four hour inner conversation of Morton Feldman and John Cage. And it, I think it was on a radio show, but it was just so awesome. It's just those two guys wow. riffing, just ripping cool. for four hours. It's so neat. But what do you what do you particularly remember from it? There's this one moment where Morton Feldman's, you know, and it's like, you know, New York accent, those radios, John, those radios are just so <laughs> annoying. Like, you know, I go to the beach and it's just like <gasps> Is this where he gets the idea for the radio on. piece? No, maybe. No, but he says, oh. you know, he's like, you know, just basically saying what yeah. that quote implied was that, you know, I don't like this. And Cage said, well, you know what I did, Morton, or Morty, or whatever, you know, his nickname <laughs> was? He said, what? you know, what, what I did was I, I, I took inspiration from what they did. You know, you have to be like the cave painters back in the, you know, like the cavemen. Yeah, or like yeah, yeah. They, they drew these you pictures of, you know, of the animals that they saw to confront them in some way. So what I did was I wrote pieces for radios uh, in a way so that when I did, wow. when I did hear them, they were just playing my music. <laughs> So, <laughs> like, oh, so like, it's like to confront it, yeah, to confront it through using art, maybe like to deep. open. Yeah, so it's just it's just wow. a really cool little thing, just yeah. ripping off of you. But and that's yeah. great though. Well, on that note, I or, think this is... Uh, do you want to say your quote? Well, I think this is a good place to take a break. Let's take oh, okay. a little break for, for a shout-out to the sponsors we don't have yet. <laughs> okay. And, uh, you know, we'll, 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 we'll bang that theme song out your speakers one more time. And, coming at uh, you. Yeah, coming at you all night long on the quiet store. <laughs> oh, yeah. All right. So, uh, yeah. What does well, it feel like to have a naturally great radio voice? It just, you is know... That, is that like a blessing or a curse? Is it a burden? It most often comes up when I'm checking out at, like, retail and grocery (laughs) type establishments. People are like, you have a great voice. And I usually make some joke about, like, yeah, you know, I should just 
get into the like lucrative voiceover, the lucrative end of the voiceover business. <laughs> and then I could, you know, be independently wealthy, like be the next Don LaFontaine, the movie preview in a world, you know, that guy. And then just write whatever music I want, you know, because I'm making all my money as a Don LaFontaine. Oh, but before we go to break, I have a question for you guys. This just came to my mind when we were talking earlier. So what current... So, uh, oh, it, it goes with your D&D. What was that thing again? The chaotic neutral? Yeah, the alignment. All right. I was thinking, I mean, Dr. House isn't really, but kind of. So what current or recent television character or movie, Netflix, web, whatever, would John Cage be? Like if John Cage were a guy or girl who's currently <laughs> in popular culture storytelling somewhere, who would be, who, who would he be? And we'll think about that. All so right. We'll answer All right. This after we'll the answer. Break? We'll answer this. Okay. In, do you have an answer right now? No. No. no okay. Answer. We'll answer this after the break. So we'll be back. Wells Fargo. No, actually. Okay, and we're back. Wells Fargo, though, if you want to throw some money our way, I know you're like kind of making penance to the artistic community right now, so we'll put it to good use. Uh, yeah. So, before the break, we asked the question if Sean Cage were a current TV or movie character, who would he be? The I think chaos we neutral. It. I, and think I think we might have solved it. it. I think Alex cracked the case. Well, actually, it, I can't take full credit for the answer because I think it was CJ who came up with it. We just justified it after the fact. But oh, okay. after throwing around several different names, we finally settled on um, John Cage as Groot from mm. Guardians of the Galaxy. Mm. Voiced by Vin Diesel. Voiced by Vin Diesel. So like when, so the, when John part. Cage comes out, Triple X. Vin Diesel as John Cage as Groot. <laughs> Which I think is a great concept for a piece of music. It's very, like, Cajun in its nature. <laughs> yeah, plus I think Cage, like, if you ever listen to him talk in a recording, he talks very much in a very non-Vin Diesel voice. You know, like, they, I think they have, like, the opposite end of male vocal color and spectrum and pitch register. Anyway, so, and and, and why, do, why do we think this, Alex? Well, initially, because we were saying, like, you know, sort of the whole I am Groot, I am Groot, I am Groot over and over again thing. It's just very, yeah. very cagey. And then it gets yeah. to the end, and the resolution of the we are Groot, all of us are, are John Cage. Yeah, it's <laughs> so... Yeah, it's like a non-traditional cadence. Yeah, that you've but just been waiting for. But canonically, Groot is actually saying things much more complex, and we, as people, just aren't used to hearing his language, so we're just hearing something different, which I think Thank is. Thank you, Alex, for kicking it back by to the, far to the comic books. <laughs> yes, That's you're good. welcome. That's important. It's by far the most cage aspect of Groot. Oh, he's speaking a language we don't even know how to understand. Exactly. Yeah. So, like, he's speaking a language, and there's definitely stuff there to unpack. We just don't have the reference point. To access yeah. it immediately. You yeah. have to listen to it. You have to listen to it again and again and well, again. And actually, familiarize context, yourself yeah. with the... Now that you said that, I mean, that's actually a wonderful encapsulate, in, ugh, encapsulation, encapsulization. I'm not sure what the word is. Encapsulization. Encapsulization <laughs> of musical innovators and artistic innovators in general. I mean, we often call them ahead of their time. But in all seriousness, like people who innovate in any way that really even if it's in a minor way, that's enough to buck the traditions of the time or to seem like, so the, like an easy reference point is to say every generation 
their parents' generation is going to think that something about the new generation's music is quote-unquote noise, right? Mm. And that you can see examples of this going back hundreds of years, and probably even longer than hundreds of years. Um, but I think that some of the greatest musical innovators, at least that I can think of, it wasn't until later that we could look back that, you know, theorists, um, audiences, music historians, musicians could look back and say, oh, like, I get what they were saying now. It just didn't quite make sense in the way that people were used to hearing the language at the time. Well, it's that idea of things not evolving directly in a linear fashion. You know, whenever mm, something yeah. draws from outside sources, you can't see it at the time it's happening because obviously you don't have like the bird's eye perspective to look down and notice like where those forms are coming from. But when you look back in context, you can sort of trace those patterns a lot more easily because yeah. you'll see an evolutionary sort of cycle there. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great uh, riff on, I think, who is it? I think it was a philosopher, Soren Kierkegaard, who said, life is lived forward, but understood backwards. In the sense, like, you can't... Like, even, like the like, once and future king kind of deal. Yeah, where it's like, it's like okay, well, we just got to keep living forward. Maybe we can't really, like... I don't yeah. know. I always think about it even, like, I don't know. I'm reading this one little book. I don't even know what to call it, but it's this book by Nicholson Baker called You and I, and it's this, this little riff on this one author named John Updike, who he's, like, mm -hmm. admired, and he's trying to, like, write this commemorative book it's yeah. almost like about the process of him right, writing right. this commemorative book but he almost says like it's it's odd with authors and any kind of artist in the sense that we i he, i guess he compares it to like friends that he has now where he's like if like with your contemporaries like they're these very complex people and sometimes like they keep putting out stuff and it's almost the same as like if you had a friend of close proximity you wouldn't be constantly like trying to delve deep into their canon or their, you know, their oeuvre or whatever, whatever the French word is, or like their works. But then yeah. like once they die, you finally just go in and try mm -hmm. to understand it. And then you're like, I got it. I know what he was saying, but. Uh, you're saying are, we are rude. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. Oh, the whole time. <laughs> but it's like, are we, are, I, I feel like maybe like human beings are more complex than that. Like even like Dave, if I got to know Dave better, like I wouldn't understand him all the way, but maybe when he, when he died, I would give a great obituary and like Dave was this and this and this and this, mm. but would that encapsulate all of Dave? I think that's really interesting actually because yeah. like when you first meet somebody like you in our first conversation, I might take away certain things about you. Yeah. And then somebody would ask me to be like, oh, do you know so and so? And I'd be like, oh yeah, you know like CJ, he's a guitarist, grad student. He reads yeah. a lot of philosophy. That's but nice. then like if I got to know you for like several more months, I wouldn't be able to sum you up like succinctly because I would have a lot of experiences with you to draw from I wouldn't be able yeah. to say that that would not be like the way I would describe you to somebody mm -hmm. but then Ooh, yeah you're right after you that's, that's great Alex because then it's almost like we're trying to become I don't know it's like we're not learning it's like we're unlearning in a sense like yeah. the more we get to know something like we unlearn yeah it. that's a great way to think of it because like way, we yeah. have an initial reaction to somebody in which yeah. we immediately want to classify them and profile them into something recognizable to make sense of what we've seen mm -hmm. and then the longer it goes on the more we like sort of we don't need that structure anymore because we're more comfortable interacting with the person or the concept you or the idea anymore. What you have learned. <laughs> well, it, goes back to your, it goes back to your quote, right? Where it's like, okay, is the, uh, the John Cage quote, right? Where it's like, is there a reason to, to like this or to yeah. hate this? No. Is there, there a reason, is no reason. Is there a reason to try to classify somebody or like what's sort of classical or yeah, Bach can't as this Baroque? Be like just no, there isn't. Maybe it is. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, no, but play devil's advocate, I think there's a usefulness to understanding things to classifying them in order to understand them in a context sure i think the danger is when you use that classification as a crutch to avoid thinking critically in a way that could make more interesting better art that could reveal new things you know what i mean so like yeah. when you say like no this is 
100% belongs in this category, and that's all it is, and it has nothing to say about anything else, then you're really limiting yourself in a way that I think kills good art. No, I totally agree. And I think that's the point, is that when you first meet someone or interact with something or listen to a piece, you immediately need to categorize it as something, because we as human beings, for whatever reason, have this need to structure things to really feel like we can conceive of them, like we're comfortable with them. Um, but then once you get more comfortable with it, you don't need to classify it and put it in a box anymore. But then, like you said, once somebody dies, then maybe we need some way to come to terms with that or categorize that person's impact on our life or sort of pack it neatly away into something. And so that's when we start classifying it again. So like yeah. music, when it first starts happening, you know, if a piece comes out, we might say, oh, this is a pop song. But then uh, like yeah. a few years down the road, pop is really sort of an ambiguous term. And like, I don't really uh, know what I would call this song. Like, I don't know what is firework by Katy Perry. Like, I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah. But 20 this years from electronica. now. This is electro-funk house track. <laughs> right, yeah. exactly. But 50 years from now, when people are classifying music of the new millennium, yeah. they're probably just going to say that was a pop song. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Early tw- 2000s pop. Yeah, yeah. they're not going to be like, well, actually, Jenkins, that was electro-sound <laughs> pop trash wave. <laughs> I love it. I'm sorry, that was Trash referring core. to the timbre, not to the vape songwriting. Core. Yeah. No. Vape core. <laughs> my favorite... My fav- <laughs> I think, I think this core. is another Paul Barsom, but, like, my fav- <laughs> I can't even say... My, fav- <laughs> my favorite subgenre that came up in... Oh, no. I think it was a composition forum one time in college. We were talking about, like, all the different metal and electronic EDM-type subgenres... And how, you know, there's all these things that have core at the end or metal at the end or whatever. You know, there's grindcore and there's deathcore and there's this. And Paul told us about, hey, did you know there's this genre called mallcore? We're like, what's mallcore? It's like, <laughs> that's like the hardcore that you listen to at Hot Topic. <laughs> 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 or that they play. <laughs> so it's like, it's really, it's, it's like really heavy and edgy oh, yeah. in the most... Team commercial way possible. Well, it's like elevator jazz is not really jazz oh music God. at all, yeah. but it's elevator yeah. jazz. You yeah. know, it's true. But it's almost like this like need for like identity mm. in some weird sense. And then like when we go back to like John Cage, it's almost he's just like no, yeah. he just well, throws out the idea of like this like thing that we urge that we need. Okay. We need identity or like intention, artistic intention, or like this is my work and like I must make a sure yeah. Like I don't know, like the idea of like making a mark on the world is very odd to me. Where it's like don't. Want don't I want to, like, clean up the world? Like, why do I have to, like, make a dent in it? Or, like, yeah, mark it up? Or, yeah, maybe John Cage is just like, paradigm. no, I'm not making a dent. I'm just, like, you know, just I'm shining reveal- this I'm, I'm, reveal- I'm revealing the sculpture that was already under the marble. Well, I think it's, like, even, you know, when you first start a new job or move to a new place or maybe, like, when you're entering high school or entering college, like, mm-hmm. you feel this need to sort of have an image yeah. where it's like, oh, well, I'm starting high school. It's time for the new Alex. <laughs> like, now it's 50% more goth or, like, yeah. whatever, you're doing, <laughs> whatever your thing is, like, you have to have an image yeah, now with 50% more goth. because you need, like, a way to sort of package yourself and present it to other people. Uh-huh. And I feel like maybe yeah. what John Cage is, is he's that weird kid that, like, sits in the cafeteria with, like, none of the tables and he's just mm. like, come to me, everyone. Like, let's all discuss outside of our respective cliques. Like, yeah. <laughs> Well, I don't know, was there anything that you caught from him? Uh, I don't know, in regards to quotes, I know. Yeah, Alex, okay. Alex gave us her little gossip Shut that she go got first. from the <laughs> that was good. John Cage no, that was table. Good. So, like, what did you get from spending multiple lunches? You know, there's, it seems like whenever the guy opened his mouth in a way that got written down and passed along, he said something, you know, that pushes your thinking outside of the yeah. box. And I want to, you know, the next time we had to do a podcast, I want to talk some about how, like, is this in some ways, a a luxury of the modern era. Like, so you were talking about how we need to put things in categories and patterns. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, when you're 
living in the jungle or in the caves or whatever, like, yeah, you, like you need that. You need to know where your tribe is and you need to know which tree has the clues that tell you there's a saber toothed tiger behind it because you need to stay alive. Like, you know, right. we need those patterns to stay alive. And in a way we do now, but it's different. You know, we have some, we have some civilization safety net under us that maybe lets us think outside of the box. Right. So how much of that is innovation? How much of that is just like, you know, the development of society. Well, but yeah, people still have a problem with that. There are a lot of people who are having a really hard time unlearning this idea of classifying people in certain groups or certain profiles based on what yeah. they feel is a need to identify the world around them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, for one, welcome our new taco truck overlords. <laughs> I am right there with you. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. <laughs> so my favorite John... be a little bit more John Cage about the world. Yeah, heal the world. Make it a John Cage. Right, like so, a, a John Cage cover of We Are the World. I yeah. really wish I could have heard that. Um, you know, my favorite John Cage quote that I always come back to, and I I, I need to look up the exact source of this. I think we're going to take the same quote. Cause Are we going to take it? Maybe, but I have another one if you're going to... Oh, no, I can do another. I was going to no, do no, this do one. It. You sure? Do Go it. for it. Do you know where it comes from? Me neither. <laughs> I need to look it up. <laughs> All right, it's... Uh, well, so I think there was a book either, I don't know if it was by him or written about him that had part of this as the title, but the, the first couple lines are the most provocative. I have nothing to say, and I am saying it. But it keeps going, and that is poetry. As I needed it. Oh. As I needed it. Okay. But just that, like, that, it's like nihilism and not nihilism at the same time. I don't know how to say it. Like, I have nothing to say and I am saying it and that is poetry. Well, I think it goes back to the idea of, like, identity or, like, trying to have some kind of meaning behind your work. I mean, 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 we think of, like, you know, artists. Or, I don't know, I think it's something even like a conservatory, this idea of, like, Mm self-expression and a need to develop our craft in order to have a voice. Let's take Wagner at the other end of the spectrum here. Sure, as someone who yeah. is like, you know, this is my statement and my right. voice and my yeah. meaning and Jews aren't so great. And like, like yeah. he had, he had, all, he had, all, he had these big ideas about what his music was and what it had to say. Sure. The and views then, expressed here are solely the views of Wagner and do not reflect on the unmeasured podcast in any way. <laughs> Truth. <laughs> yes. Disclaimer here. Yeah, no, no, no. He didn't like the Jews. We, we love the Jews. I'm just saying. <laughs> Jews are great. Jews are awesome, man. No, but I mean that idea, yeah, that. You don't, I don't know, it's just like, I'm not going to express myself, and not expressing in myself, that is my art. It's a difficult thing not to feel like you have a packaged identity ready to go, though, you know? I mean, like, I know even starting at the conservatory, you're surrounded by all these people who are obviously artists, but there's this sense of, like, oh, well, I am a musical theater major, (laughs) like, I am a guitar performance major, Mm -hmm. like, and it's very hard not to do that. When I switched degrees to my own self-designed degree plan, like, that was the hardest thing. It's Mm. it's crazy. Just the identity Well, because everybody asks you. They're like, well, what's your major? major? And that's, like, the first thing people ask you. It's like, okay, well, that's just sort of a thing about me, you know? But Mm -hmm. it goes back to that. We need a way to classify people when we meet them. And so that's what a lot of people refer to in college. They're like, oh, well, that's so-and-so. He's an NPRT major. Or that's so-and-so. She's a musical theater Because there's this, like, package of meaning Well, exactly. Like, there are certain things that go along with that that people will make instant associations about and it's very hard not to have one of those because you don't have anything to rely on when you're interacting with people and in it a makes way it's not so different from social status in earlier parts of our culture like you know yeah. oh you are you know you are merely the son of a baker so you don't you know right, you couldn't right, possibly right. marry into my family or whatever 
Yeah. Yeah. So, so it's so that, difficult. Yeah, and then that might be part of like I, I think that's my at least now I'm I'm discovering like that's my favorite part of the as I needed it. Yeah, I never. So that, that was the part I didn't know. So why is that like, your favorite part? I don't know. I think just because talking about trying to cope with identity or like uh, an artistic statement, like okay. The fact that I have nothing to say is my statement. Like, that's my identity. <laughs> I don't need to have something profound to say that justifies my art. Right. Like, you know, it doesn't I have to be for anybody else. Yeah. You know, this can be poetry simply because I need it to be poetry. Right. You yeah, have to that make a major need. to justify yeah. right. being <laughs> a student or being a Well, yeah. yeah. You know, I'm learning the things I want to learn and I'm having the experiences I want to have because I feel like they're valuable to me, not because I think they fit into somebody yeah. else's yeah. idea of what I need to be as so a student. So it's interesting, Alex. I'll, I'll, like, I'll say that I've seen you over the last what this is the third school year ish that I've known you I think so when you were in my class um I didn't realize what a personality you had in 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 the way that you just perfectly expressed until I saw that outside of that very controlled environment and granted the class then was not nearly as it is as interesting as it is now like it, it was really also changed. like 8 a.m so oh my god <laughs> well and i'm not saying like that i i just didn't i i never saw the the totality of the creative person that you are let me say it that way until i could see you outside of that class and i think part of that is just like the the the, the little lanes that we put ourselves in educationally mm-hmm. but i think part of that is also I think that lines up pretty well with the stage in your education career where you were moving outside of that traditional degree program track and doing your own thing. And it's really cool to see someone like you um, really, uh, you know, thrive that way in terms of, you know, blazing your own path. I think that's awesome. (laughs) Well, but I think that's awesome. And I think that, you know, Shout out to you for that. It's not that you weren't a good musician at the time or a good student or a good person. Like, I'm not I'm not denigrating who you were. I'm just saying, like, it's really cool to see how when you're willing to embrace being the musician and the person that you want to be, it makes you, like, it makes you come alive. Totally. It, it doesn't, <laughs> well, you know, it doesn't, like, it, it's not taking away the identity. It's giding you your idea. It, you are taking responsibility for having your own identity instead of for justifying other people's expectations. Well, yeah, you're no longer making art or creating because you feel like you have to in order to justify being the person you tell everybody you are. Mm. You're <laughs> making art now because it's a result of the person that you are. So you're no longer saying, like, I'm a jazz studies major, so I have to play jazz saxophone, and that's what I am, and that's what I do, and that's everything you need to know about me is that I play saxophone. Mm. It's more of this, like, playing saxophone is something that I love to do, and so mm. I'm creating it. And as a result, art is happening. That some like summarizes the quote that I was going to use Go. for John Cage and I think it wraps up Do it. around that idea perfectly where he says I, I'm not going to quote it right but this is what he this is the gist of what he says we he don't says, fact check paraphrase yeah. unmeasured podcast paraphrase yeah. yeah there is no why only here mm. wow that's awesome that's deep that's it yeah, that, be that's, present yeah exactly or just do the art, not the, the Zen of Cage. Yeah, <laughs> the Tao of Cage. <laughs> I love it. I want to close this portion of our podcast with um, what we were talking about. Just reminded me of a conversation that happened just today on Facebook. So, um, somebody I knew from um, uh, doing music ministry at a church shared a conversation that happened uh, between her and a couple other people this past weekend. The person asked what her major was, and she said psychology and music. She doesn't go to the school; she goes to another school. And the person says, oh, okay, and then asks 
her friends say next to her, what's your major? And that person, the friend, says biomedical engineering. And the person says, oh, okay, now that's a major I can respect. And (laughs) and her comment on Facebook after relaying this conversation was, can we please end this mentality that liberal arts majors are are a waste? Thanks. Um, And some really interesting comments after that. Uh, But the... The uh, it it reminded me of a quote from Howard Thurman. Don't ask what the world needs. Ask what makes you come alive and go do it. Because what the world needs is people who have come alive. Mm. We need people to be here and yeah. present. I'm there's there's the moral of the podcast, guys. May we all go and do what makes us alive. Yeah. Without, may the cage be with may you. May the cage be with yeah, you and, and also, also with you. you. <laughs> <laughs> ah, that's the cradle Christian in you. <laughs> and with your spirit. <laughs> and with your, oh, oh, kicking it back to the old school. I think that that's one thing I, I love sometimes too. It's just like sometimes as much as it's like, you know, we need your music. Like I almost think like we need you. Like that's the main thing. Like yeah. as much as like you want to be a musician, like we need you to be present and here and doing yeah, like, yeah like that's, that's i can't tell you how many part. conversations i have it's usually the the conversations that happen outside of class with students who talk about feeling like they don't belong or they're just faking mm-hmm. it or you know like they don't they're not fulfilling that image thing that alex that you were talking syndrome. about it's yeah oh thank you for i knew there was yep. a term and i couldn't remember it in a conversation i just had the other day You're and you know and i and i and i laugh because you know me being a few years past my college career now, I can look back and, and I still feel that sometimes, but I used to feel that so much more. And, and I, I often try to, you know, reassure people, not just reassure, but affirm them like, no, we need you. Like you have something unique and valuable to offer. And I usually try to call out what I see in them that's unique and valuable, which there really isn't everybody. I mean, yeah. I, I'm not just making a blanket statement. Yeah. Some people yeah. are not called to be yeah. an X major or a Y major, but they have something of value to contribute. And uh, I, I think it's a shame when people feel so much the need to, you know, to do what they think they ought or what their parents thought they ought or what some perception of a teacher or a person, the voice they have in their head thinks they ought or should. And, it, but it's awesome when you see a person like we were talking about in your, in your college days, you know, Alex being able to step outside of that and just do what makes them alive. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, yeah, like you said, CJ, that's the most valuable contribution that yeah. we can make. And I remember, I remember, you know, you introduced me to the NPR One app, and I've just been <laughs> using one. it, using it like crazy. Yeah. And there was this great interview um, by this uh, writer, a fiction writer named George Saunders, and he's mm. wonderful. But um, he has this little thing where he says, like, love is in the details, in the sense, like, the more you get into something and invest in something, almost like mm-hmm. your own writing or anything, you, you learn to love more. And I think in, in some way, if maybe we can see the details of our own life, and maybe this is, goes to Cage too, where it's like, in the, if you can just love the little nooks and crannies and details of everybody and maybe try to yeah. open the door and smile at the person or like, you know, if you're the barista, the you know, just try to, try to smile you know, at the people and make them feel happy or give them some kind of satisfaction and when you pick up the phone like you can just be like good morning you know welcome how can oh, I, I help see you? you do that too with a lot of people cj like you yeah. bring a lot of uh well it's i don't know what the right word is well, for i it. don't know either but whatever sunshine it is. yeah whatever it's not it just is. sunshine though like you you i see when you talk to people you really talk to them right and i think and that's, I think that's awesome he emphasizes too it's just like yeah. if you're present and if you it's like it's in the thing you know, love is in the details like you know like love is just a part of just like getting the nook and crannies of life and 
observing them and really giving them their full credit. And I think that's yeah. something that we can give to Cage too, where he said like sound is all of it is really awesome and beautiful. Mm-hmm. And if you can do that in some way you can look into anybody and see... It's not see... just playing a piece, it's playing it exactly 824 times. Yeah, you can say, well, maybe there's a merit to that. Yeah, yeah. Maybe you can look at anybody. You can look at a Donald Trump and say, like, okay, like, why do people like him? Is there something, there must be something about him? Or, like, you can oh, look man. at anything. We could talk about that all night. I think that's sure. really important. Like, anytime yeah, yeah. we write off a group of people a way of thinking, like, we're usually missing something. Yeah. Like, why is Donald Trump so popular? Well, he's tapping into people's real concerns. Now, he might be not doing it in a way that I... Sure. agree with at all yeah <laughs> but that doesn't mean we can dismiss those concerns yeah. and those experiences and maybe like like hate is is maybe like if we're using that metaphor like you know if love is in the details then maybe hate is just like surface level just like oh muslims yeah. oh there's this yeah oh this or, yeah if you're writing yeah. off the generalizations details. or yeah or like yeah if the love sound. is in the details then i think that definitely prejudice is in generalizations that's yeah totally or it goes back, back to the sound idea too where it's just like oh static scapegoating in oh. the rise of the third reich it's like you know yeah. if we need somebody to blame things on let's blame it on yeah the jews and on the gays exactly. and, on the, and like you know, if we can like yeah, yeah. If we can get into the details... Well, and yeah, as long as you don't take the time to actually think about that, it makes perfect sense. I heard a wonderful, a couple wonderful um, stories on NPR recently that were uh, saying that exact thing. People go... one of uh, Well, actually, I think one of them might have been an episode of This American Life. One of them was NPR Politics podcast. And they were both coming to the conclusion that they were talking... Reporters talking to people of very, very, very different political persuasions, like, you know, wide ranging parts of the spectrum and people talking to people of different persuasions, including, you know, people who were not Trump supporters talking to Trump supporters. And then in this This American Life story was people who were European Jews in America as part of a secret program where they were kind of interrogating, but in a very kind of wooing them in friendly way, uh, Nazi POWs mm-hmm. um, and the, the point that these stories are making in both cases was about when you see the humanity of another person, like when you, it's hard to, it's, it's easy to hate an idea. Mm-hmm. It's easy to hate someone from a distance. I heard this right. sociologist in NPR talking about this too, like how, you know, like we, we evolved to have all these visual nonverbal cues and things like that. You know, this is why it's easy to be, she was talking about why people are mean to each other. She was mm-hmm. a, what was he like a, oh, I can't remember the word, a, a, a psychologist of technology basically. But that's why people are, one of the reasons why people are so mean online is because it's easier to do that when you don't see a person. You see right. an idea or you see a, a figurehead or whatever it is. You, you know? can project so much onto that. Yeah. But like when you know a person, like you can't just, it's hard then to say like, oh, all Trump supporters are this or all Nazis are this or all Jews are this or whatever. So um, we're going to close our podcast. So guys, this has been a wonderful conversation without bar lines. Thank Love you it. so much for being, thank you, Alex, for being part of uh our first episode and thank you yeah, CJ thank you guys for, for having me developing this idea together thank you all yeah it takes, takes three to tango so thank you so much <laughs> sounds like a cage idea uh, yeah yeah that's our that can be our response to any really weird idea now it's like that's so cagey made the cage be with you <laughs> yeah anytime someone busts in on the room we're recording and it's like oh that's the music yeah right there so uh we decided that we would try ending our episodes with with a T-U-Q a totally unrealistic question. Love it. Yeah. So, um, you know, a couple examples, like maybe, um, you know, if John Cage falls in a forest and no one is there to hear him scream, does Bob kill a kitten? I don't know. Or like, you know, uh, Alex suggested, uh, you know, if you could go back in time and introduce one piece of music to one composer who hadn't heard it, 
yet, who would you take it to? Do you want to do that one? Uh, sure. Or, yeah. or, or, or the one that I was going to suggest for tonight. I think this one's a winner. All right. It's a game changer. We'll, we'll, we'll do those others another time. And maybe our listeners can send us some at some point once we have listeners. Um, <laughs> it's a game changer. Uh, so guys, this is my question for you. And all three of us will answer this, but briefly, like a sentence or two. If Bill Clinton becomes the first male spouse of a president, which I think it's, I think that'll be the first gentleman, but I might just be getting that from um, some TV show. Anyway, so if Bill Clinton becomes the first, first dude, should he take up the saxophone again? Why or why not? I think if Bill Clinton becomes first dude, he absolutely should take up the saxophone, but... You're also a saxophone But, player. well, yes, that's fair. That's fair. Full disclosure, I am a saxophonist. In addition to the contrabassoon. Right. Well, you know, you got to have a side game. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, contrabassoon does get the booty shaken, so... <laughs> well, you're not wrong. But I think if Bill Clinton does take up the saxophone again, it should be because it's art that he's passionate about, and not because he feels like he's carved out a niche for himself <laughs> as a saxophone circle. Full circle. Wow. <laughs> well, I think if he does, he has to do it at the inauguration. Oh, that would be oh. so great. Wait, like the ceremony or one of the inaugural balls? No. No, ceremony. like he's going to play Careless Whisper all through the inauguration ceremony. Yeah. So instead of Maya Angelou, you know, I Rise, wasn't that the poem she wrote for his inauguration? Do you know that one, Maya Angelou? I know the poem. I, don't think, yeah. I didn't I think, know that. I think she might have written that, or she wrote something for an inauguration. I think it was his first inauguration. Or like Yo-Yo Ma and... Uh, you know, I can't remember the other musicians. Like, we'll have. Bill yeah, I don't care if it's. Saxophone. I don't care if it's. You know, air saxophone. Like pre-recorded. Lip syncing. What is the equivalent of that? Well, well you play with your lips. He reads. He reads. Well, it would be finger syncing if yeah. he was trying to follow along. <laughs> That's true. I mean, it's really a whole body activity. Like yeah. the sex. Especially when he plays. Have you seen videos? It's great. <laughs> when he plays. <laughs> it's been. Did he play? It. I think he played on the Arsenio Hall yeah. show or something back in the into day. Into it. I was alive for that. I remember. I mean, he and he had the. Sunglasses, the Animaniacs intro. If anybody's ever watched oh, well, that yeah. old show, Bill, while Bill Clinton Animaniacs plays the sax, formative in my like sense. Oh, of humor. holla! Yeah. yeah, but that's 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 my only that's my only sentence. Okay, it's, it's like he if he should yes, yes but if it's at the <laughs> inaugural ceremony. So you? I would say, see, I, I know Bill Clinton isn't the vigorous man that he once was. Like you know, his health mm. is kind of his voice isn't as strong. His so I'd, I'd be concerned for his health. You know, yeah. like. I think, you know, saxophone is... I, I've tried playing one once or twice. you got to put a lot of air in that. Thing, well, that's, so. that's actually interesting you should bring that up. And I only say that because when the saxophone first started becoming popular, there was actually a study released saying that playing the saxophone leads to a shortened lifespan. <laughs> oh, no! <laughs> was it double-blind, randomized, you know? Well, it was, it was kind of set up. Oh, yeah, okay. I mean, they didn't want to play the saxophone. The saxophone, fun fact... Saxophone is the only instrument that has for a period of time been banned by the Catholic Church. What? <laughs> Catholic Wait, the saxophone, saxophone is only like 150 years old, right? Oh, it's been a history. I mean, that's not very long The saxophone has had a tumultuous life. So what were the reasons? Was it just... It was too sexy. The yeah, saxophone maybe, was too seductive and too provocative for church. Yeah, the Catholic Church Round banned Round Earth is cool, but saxophone. no saxophone, man. Yeah, man. That's... Hey, that's your saxophone fun fact for the day. All right. I, so, you know, as to whether Bill Clinton... Should take up the sex one again. Yeah, I think I'm, you know if he feels passionate about it, if it makes him come alive, go for it. But you know, so Bill Clinton is someone that I think it's always he really enjoys like the adoration of a room or an audience. So you know, if he enjoys that, go for it. And if, he, but or maybe this could be the one thing he does for him. You know, yeah, not for anybody else, just for him. 
maybe like his his cause as first dude because you know like the first lady oh, traditionally right. has like a social platform yeah. and picks out maybe, the China and the flowers. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, maybe Bill Clinton's first dude platform can be like getting saxophone to like inner city school children. Yeah, totally. I think that's important. I feel like there's a bad pun in that, and I can't think of it right now. <laughs> but I sure will later. Yeah, probably not. No, but that yeah. So like bring Saxy back or something like that. Like, yeah, save oh, sax in schools. Save sax in Saxon schools. And on that note, <laughs> thank you for listening to the first episode of the Unmeasured Podcast. Conversations about bar lines. Which has been a conversation about bar lines, but we have to put a double bar on this episode. So, oh, until next time, I'm Dave. I'm CJ. And I'm Alex. Alright, bye guys. Bye, thank you. Welcome. <laughs>